So I get to jump into an ongoing series, which you guys are probably traveled with for far longer than I have since I've only heard two services. So the blessings of the sons of Jacob in Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis 49. And we've gone through six sons. Uh, Pastor Carl and Pastor John have gone through Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan last week, and now we're coming up to Gad. And I'll have to confess one thing. Every time I say Gad, I chuckle just a little bit. Are any of you familiar with like a West Michigan accent? Yeah, right. Um, so I'm from West Michigan. Um, I grew up um, in a little town called Grand Haven. And my West Michigan accent used to be far worse than it currently is. And I moved to Chicago, and I've lived here for a little under a decade now, so it's softened a little bit. However, if you've ever heard anyone from West Michigan talk about God, you're more likely to hear Gad, which is a very high A. So when I'm saying, this is, I, so if I chuckle, bear with me, if I say Gad, what I hear is God growing up in West Michigan. So I'm going to struggle through it. So I hope you don't hear it, but now I've drawn attention to it, so you probably will. Uh, but we're going to be listening to or learning about Gad this evening. And when I shared that with my family back in Michigan, they said, well, isn't that what you preach every Sunday? Um, and then I had to specify, because they could not hear the difference. So tonight, Gad, the son of Jacob. And we're going to be in verse 19. And that's on 83, if you haven't found it already. I gave you plenty of time. So 49, 19. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. And this is the word of the Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. You kind of begin to wonder, if you guys have traveled with this for a little bit longer than I have, if Jacob is kind of running out of steam at this point. Because up until Gad, um, who gets a sentence, uh, prior, Jacob was getting really descriptive. There were passages, there were poetry, there was images. He, he kind of got caught up in it, right? I mean, his sons were donkeys and vipers and lions and snakes, and then he gets to Gad and it's a little bit shorter. It's kind of like Gad then finally kneels next to his father Jacob. He had just heard Dan, who Carl went through last time, had just heard his half-brother Dan, who was the son of a servant woman, be blessed as a full son of Jacob, which gives Gad a little bit of hope because he's also born of a servant woman. Um, and so he wasn't quite sure if he would have a place along with the beloved Joseph, the last-born Benjamin, the elder Reuben, or the lion like Judah. And so Gad's called forward. He approaches father Jacob. And Jacob turns his face to this middle son, to this seventh son, and he begins his blessing with what we have just read. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. You know, maybe Jacob's just getting started. I can kind of totally imagine Gad thinking that. Well, you know, eventually I'm going to be referred to as a lion or maybe even a viper like Dan. 
And then before Gad knows it, Jacob's already on to his half-brother Asher, and then on to Naphtali, and Gad is completely done, thinking, oh, that was my blessing. Okay. And, and the text kind of reads like that, too. I mean, the blessings don't lengthen again until Jacob comes to his far-preferred and loved son, Joseph. And then it seems like Jacob has just all the time in the world to bless this loved son by his loved wife, Rachel. But Gad? Asher? Naphtali? The sons born to the servant women, Billah and Zilpah? Here's a sentence. So I'm wondering, and what I've been wondering about this this past week is, what can we learn from this brief blessing of Gad? What does it tell us about the seventh son, and what can it possibly tell us here and now, centuries later, far removed from, from Gad, from his tribe, and from this particular story? And then when you start to look at details about Gad, about his life, they're about as brief as his blessing is, truth be told. The story here in Genesis, Gad is overshadowed by his much showier brothers like Judah and like Joseph, who get chapters about them. But more often than not, this particular brother is lumped in with the brothers. He doesn't really kind of get a standalone part at all throughout this entire narrative. But then there's his entry into the world, there's his birth. And there is something special about that, at least briefly in this family history. Because Gad was Jacob's seventh son. And, and to us, that may just sound like um, just a lot of children. But to Jacob, to Leah, to Rachel, to the original Hebrew readers of this story, it's momentous. Seven sons. I mean, that's a true blessing. That seven is a number of perfection, of completeness. So if you have seven sons, you are a blessed man indeed. In the book of Ruth, at the end of Ruth, where she has proven herself worthy and, and faithful to Naomi and, and full of God's hesed love, after you've seen that she is the hero of the story, the, the villagers, the, the women of Bethlehem, you know what they say over Ruth as like the ultimate blessing, the ultimate affirmation of who she is? Ruth! You are better than seven sons. That, that's what they, that, that was the ultimate blessing, and then Ruth was even better than that. So seven sons is this marker of absolute blessing. And Gad was this miraculous and blessed son, the seventh son. Which is why back in, back in Genesis 30, when, when he's born, when Zilpah gives birth to him and hands him over to Leah, she exclaims over him, what good fortune, what good fortune, seven sons. I have given Jacob his seventh son. But the Hebrew also actually supports the translation that a troop is coming, which maybe if some of you come from larger families, seven of them kind of feels like a troop. So you have both of these, you have what Good fortune, the seventh son. And you also have Gad as a troop. A troop is coming, given the sheer multitude of sons being given to Jacob. But then, as Leah and Rachel continue their escalating war of fertility for Jacob's affections, Gad kind of gets reduced again, because more sons come. 
So instead of that special seventh son, he's one in the middle. He's one of the boys. He's one of the brothers. And then scripture continues, and as they're unfolding the story of the 12 tribes, we get a bit more of a picture of what the tribe of Gad actually looks like. It begins to take a little bit of shape. And then we kind of learn a little bit about more about Gad by the tribe that descends from him. Gad's tribe, his descendants, throughout scripture, are mighty warriors. And, and Gad lives up to that, that second translation of the Hebrew that Leah gives him. He becomes a troop. He becomes an actual troop of fierce, fighting men who are known as experienced fighters, as people who you want to take to war with you. In, in fact, you can actually see in the blessing that, that Jacob gives to his son, you can kind of see him playing with this a little bit, because if you translate it just slightly different, you can actually hear him say, Gad, troop, means troop, will be attacked by a troop, but then he will attack that troop that attacked him. So troop is just throughout, throughout that tiny little piece, that tiny little blessing that Gad gets. And you can kind of see Jacob having a little bit of fun with that. And there's a little bit, so it's not scriptural tradition, but in rabbinical Jewish tradition, there's a tradition that Joseph, when he presented all of his brothers to Pharaoh, after he had shared with him that I am, in fact, your brother who you, know, you sold into slavery, um, and then Jacob takes, or Joseph takes all of his brothers to Pharaoh, he doesn't take Gad with him. He actually leaves Gad in the other room because he's concerned that Pharaoh, after seeing the power of Gad, the, the, the warrior skills of this particular brother, that Pharaoh would actually want to conscript him into his service so that Gad would actually become a soldier for Egypt instead of for Israel. And so Joseph kind of keeps him in the back room because this guy, this guy's a strong guy and we want to keep him on our side. In the tribe that bears his name, they live up to this reputation of their namesake of strong, mighty, strong warriors. You fast forward to Deuteronomy, and Moses is blessing the tribes again. So centuries later, Moses is giving blessings on the 12 tribes. And when he comes to Gad, he praises this tribe as full of mighty warriors who uphold the Lord's will and protect the land and the country of Israel. This is, this is what Moses says. It's a little bit longer than Jacob's blessing of his son. Moses says, blessed is the one who enlarges Gad's domain. Gad lives there like a lion, tearing at arm or head, and he chose the best land for himself. The leader's portion was kept for him. When the heads of the people assembled, he carried out the Lord's righteous will and his judgments concerning Israel. Tearing at armor, head like a lion. I like that Gad actually finally gets the lion comparison, even if it didn't come from Jacob. He eventually gets it. And if you fast forward even more into First Chronicles, where David is on the run from Saul, a bunch of men from the tribe of Gad join Saul on the run to support him, to support their king. And scripture describes them as these Gadites, these, these descendants of Gad, as brave warriors, ready for battle, able to handle the shield and the spear, and their faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. As you kind of start getting this picture of the tribe of Gad, you kind of start thinking of them as like the Israelite equivalent of the Marines. You know, they're trained and ready to be deployed anywhere that they're needed. 
They're just, they're the fighters. They're the ones you want. And, and given where this tribe settles, I don't think I have Carl's like, awesome map that he's been using, but where the tribe settles and eventually where the land is kind of parsed out to the 12 tribes, you kind of get a sense why the Gadites had to be lean, mean fighting machines. Because while the majority of the 12 tribes all kind of go on the east side of the Jordan, they go across the river, they're together, they're protected. Gad chooses, along with, I think, Reuben and half of the Manasseh tribe, to stay on the other side of the river because they felt the pasture land was really good there. They requested it. Moses said, sure, as long as you fight for us. So they got to settle on that side of the river. Downside is that side of the river is the wrong side of the river because it's vulnerable. Oh, there's the map. Awesome, yes. So see East Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben? They're on this side, and the rest of them are all on the other side of the, the river, protecting them, see, river? And then Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh are all quite vulnerable. Anybody who wants to come to attack has to get through them first. So these lean, mean, fighting machine, mighty warrior Gadites have placed themselves as protectors of the country, the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. They had to be, because Ammon, Aram, Moab, Edom, they're going to cross there first. So choosing on the wrong side of the river, they actually fulfilled Jacob's prophecy, his blessing that, you know what? Bands of raiders are going to attack you, but, they'll, but you will attack them and you will strike their heel. And, and, and Gad and his, his tribe, they, they do that again and again and again. Face an enemy, win. Face an enemy, win. Face an enemy, win. They come out victorious every time. They are the mighty warriors. Until the place that they live, a piece of that is known as Gilead, which our biblical imagination should be working overtime there, because Gilead is, is a place in scripture that is considered a place of abundance, of protection, of safety. There is a balm in Gilead, and that is because of the protection that Gad, these mighty warriors, provide for God's people. Gad may be attacked by bands of raiders, but Gad attacks them right back, protects his people just as Father Jacob said they would. So if we're looking for a theme for Gad, for his life, for, for the descendants that come after him, it, it's really a theme of strength. It's a, it's a theme of triumph, of, of trust in might and arms to repel one's enemies, to protect one's family, to protect one's land. Strength. And what looked like an all-too-brief blessing for this poor middle son turns into a blessing and assurance that every warrior needs on the eve of battle. They will come for you, but you will overcome them. That brief blessing becomes a warrior's mantra, becomes what they hold on to. But strength has a shadow side, it has a dark side, it has a major temptation that comes along with it. When one has strength, one is incredibly tempted to trust in that strength, to think that you can do it all by your own power and ability. That's the downside, that's the dark side, that's the shadow side of having strength, of being the mighty warriors who fight again and again and again and push your enemies back and back and back because you start thinking, well, we're, we're pretty awesome. We've got this. And you start forgetting where your power and your might actually come from. 
And the shadow side can actually be seen in two very famous descendants of the tribe of Gad, Jephthah and Elijah. So Jephthah's story, how many of us are familiar with Jephthah's story? A few, okay. It's, we'll get to Elijah and I'll ask the same question. We'll, we'll know more about Elijah. But, but Jephthah is, we, we're introduced to him in the book of Judges. So it's before Israel has a king. All the tribes are kind of figuring out this whole thing together and they raise up leaders called Judges. And Jephthah's story is, is one story of a judge. He's introduced, as one might expect, because he's from the tribe of Gad. He's actually described as a mighty warrior. That's who he is. And, and he has this band of men who travel with him, um, who he leads, and they're known fighters uh, throughout Gilead. And so remembering that map, you don't have to pull it up again, Igor, you're cool. Um, remembering that map, Amon was one of the countries on the, on the outskirts, really close to Gad. So the Ammonites, from that little region decide that they want to pick a fight, so they come knocking at Gilead's door. And the Gilead, those, the elders of the, the leaders in Gilead are saying, well, who is going to fight for us? Jephthah, that guy, that guy. He's got a band of people around him. He's our mighty warrior. We need to get him in here, and he needs to drive the Ammonites back. That's what the tribe of Gad does. We, we've got him. So they search out Jephthah, and they say, please, save us. Rescue us from the Ammonites, and we will make you our leader. You will be our judge, and you will rule over Gilead. So Jephthah actually thinks this is a pretty sweet deal. Um, he'd just been kind of roaming, kind of a guerrilla force with his guys for a little while, so being a leader sounds pretty, pretty sweet. So he says, yes, I'll do that. And, and we're told in Judges that Scripture tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. So his, his mission his, his battle against the Ammonites is God-ordained. The, the Lord goes with him to protect him. The Lord surrounds him and his men behind him. The Lord, the Spirit, is with Jephthah. But Jephthah isn't quite sure about this whole thing. He needs just a little bit more assurance before he goes in to fight. So he sweetens the deal. He makes a vow, a very rash and very unnecessary vow to the Lord, saying, if, if you, Lord, give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the battle will be yours. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. If you, Lord, give me victory. And like his ancestor Gad, Jephthah was attacked by a band of raiders, and he attacks them back, and he wins. But the consequences of that vow, of his lack of trust in God's presence with him, guiding him, fighting for him, the consequences of that vow meet him at home when he returns. And the first thing that crosses the threshold of his home coming towards him when he returns from battle is his daughter, his only child. And Jephthah, we're told in Judges, did to her as he had vowed. If you, Lord, give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the battle, I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. This mighty warrior was so 
used to trusting in his own strength that when he actually came up against something that he wasn't sure he could handle anymore, he made a deal with God. A rash vow, an unnecessary vow to make sure that he felt okay enough to go in. That he could trust God's promises enough if he could make a deal with God. And it cost him his daughter. It cost him his only child. That unnecessary assurance, that failure to trust, that cost him dearly. That is the shadow side of strength. Jephthah trusted his own strength so often that when it actually came to a challenge where he felt that his strength wasn't enough, he couldn't trust God enough in his strength. And then there's Elijah, the other famous guy from the tribe of Gad. So Elijah's a bit more familiar, right? I see head nodding, yeah. <laughs> so Elijah, we hear his story in 1 Kings. Elijah's a powerful prophet, right? Elijah, prophet, they're almost synonymous for us. He's the big one. He's the big guy. He, he comes on the scene, this, this descendant of Gad from the tribe of Gad. He comes on the scene saying, there will be famine in the land. And almost as soon as he says that a famine has already swept across the land, it is proving his worth, his, his power as a prophet, that he is a true prophet of the Lord. And then he goes and he rescues and he, he resurrects a little boy. And then he goes to Mount Carmel and he defeats like 500 Baal prophets in one afternoon. I mean, Elijah is a powerful, strong prophet in the Lord. And when he's coming down that mountain from Mount Carmel, and he's coming down, he's coming off a mighty victory. He's just had a huge, huge victory, strong. He's coming down and then he hears that Jezebel, the queen at the time, has also heard about his victory, isn't particularly happy about it, and is going to take his head. And Elijah, this powerful, this strong prophet, he runs away, hightails it the other way. He heads to the wilderness to get as far away from Jezebel and her threat of beheading as possible, and he just runs. And he tends to stay there. He doesn't intend to come back. He's like, fine, I'm done. Prophet thing, over. I can't handle this anymore. The Lord pursues him into the wilderness. And he actually confronts Elijah, saying, what exactly do you think you're doing out here? This prophet who had worked wonders, who had felt the power of God course through him, answers with actually what kind of sounds like a little bit of a whine. Elijah replies to God, what are you doing? Here's his answer. I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. they put your prophets to death. I am the only one left, and now they want to kill me too. He gives up. He's done. He's had it. He's in the wilderness alone, and that's where he wants to stay. His strength is not enough to be the only prophet left standing. Give it to someone else. Oh, wait, there's no one else left. Sorry, I'm done. He gets a little bratty. Elijah gets a little bratty. But what I love about this story is not the realness of Elijah, which is very true. I love when a prophet gets very real. Um, but it's about the Lord's reaction to what Elijah says to him. And the Lord basically pulls him to his feet, doesn't let him wallow in self-pity anymore, 
And he reminds Elijah that this whole thing, it's not about him, about his strength, about this prophet's ability to stand up to Jezebel, but it is about the Lord, about the Lord's strength, the Lord's promises, and nothing else. And then the Lord actually reminds Elijah, points him to 7,000 faithful people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal, who remained faithful and steadfast. And kind of reminding Elijah that he's not the big shot that he thought he was, there are 7,000 faithful followers of Yahweh, of the Lord, over there in Israel. You are not the only one, Elijah. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's not about your ability to get the job done. So we have these, these two men, these two descendants of Gad, who are the strong ones. Jephthah, the mighty warrior, Elijah, the powerful prophet. But when they come to a true trial that actually asks them to go beyond the strength that they trust in so much, that pushes them beyond what they think they're capable of or what they're able to accomplish, they falter. They make rash vows just to make sure that they have some kind of assurance because they don't trust. Or they give up because they don't trust. Their strength, their power, their ability to get by on their own strength, and their track record's pretty good, kept them from wholly trusting completely and utterly in the power and the strength of their God. Raiders will attack you, but you will overcome. Did Jacob mean that Gad would overcome in his own strength, just by being who he is, that mighty warrior who Joseph didn't want to bring before Pharaoh because he was just too cool, <laughs> too strong, didn't want him to go into the Egyptian army? Is that what Father Jacob was telling his son? You will overcome through your own strength, your own power. I don't think so. Last week, Pastor Carl drew our attention to Jacob's exclamation a verse earlier, in verse 18 in Genesis 49. It's right there in the middle of his blessings, right before we come to the blessing of his son Gad. And Jacob steps back from blessing his sons, and he looks up and he says, I look for your deliverance, Lord. I look for your deliverance. And maybe Jacob prayed this little prayer in the midst of these blessings because he knew his sons. He knew their character. He knew what was before them. Maybe he said this little prayer because he knew his people. Maybe it's because he knew his own weakness that his sons had inherited. Maybe he knew that we too often look to our own strength, our own ability to deliver us from the raiders that attack us from the difficulties that we face or the times of trial that come our way. Raiders will attack you and you will overcome. Not through your own power or your strength or your ability, but through God's promised deliverance, his promised salvation. I look for your deliverance, Lord. This brief blessing of Gad, 
I think turns out to be a pretty needed word for us sitting here, at least for me, here in the 21st century, far from the origins of the story. Because all of us need to be reminded of our own temptation to trust in our own abilities, our own strength to care for our family, for our home, for our own futures. We're very capable people, folks. We like to think that we're also very capable people. We like to trust in our own capability. Now, I know where I am this evening. I don't know where you are this evening. I don't know what you're facing in life, what you're facing at work, what you're facing in your family, or what you're facing in your own heart. I don't know these things. I don't know if you feel strong right now. I don't know if you feel weak right now. I don't know if you feel capable or if you feel absolutely vulnerable. But wherever you are in life right now, this truth stands. We look for our deliverance from the Lord. Whether we are strong or we are weak, whether we are trusting or whether we are faltering, our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Paul in Philippians can speak into this just a little bit. Philippians is a letter where Paul is talking about his own trials, his struggles, the things that confront him, the raiders, the bands of raiders that attack him. In his summary statement at the end of that letter of trial and tribulation and exhaustion and weakness is the truth that he would hold on to. This is what he says. Quite simply, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul knew the source of his strength. And more so than Jacob, more so than Gad or Jephthah or Elijah, we know the fullness of the Lord's deliverance in our own lives. We know the fullness of the Lord's deliverance through life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. We know on this side of the story, the lengths that God will go to rescue and deliver his people. We know that. We know that we are not strong enough. But our strong Lord and Savior is, thanks be to God. And we can do all things through him who gives us strength. That is not our own. Raiders will attack, but you will overcome. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Amen. Let's pray. our Lord, maker of heaven and earth. We come before you this evening, the strong and the weak, the capable and the vulnerable. We come to you with our hearts full of temptation to trust our own strength, to trust our own capabilities, 
to trust our own selves. Father, and I ask that you deliver us from that temptation. Remind us that you are the source of our strength. And that Jacob's blessing to his son is also our blessing. We will face difficulty. We will be attacked. But we will overcome. Not on our own. But through you. Through your son. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.